Our society has now reached the point where marriage, one of the most fundamental elements of our society, in any society for that matter, is so misunderstood that even many men of goodwill are incapable of giving a clear explanation of exactly what marriage itself is. Let that not be said of us. Let's make sure everyone here clearly understands that marriage is a contract that results in a relationship. We just saw a contract being made. Here's the exact contract just made by exchanging vows. The traditional description of it is the man and the woman give and accept a perpetual and exclusive right for acts which are of themselves suitable for the generation of children. That's the marriage contract. By validly making and consummating that contract, then the two become more closely related to each other than a father is to his own son or a brother is to his own sister. And that relationship is made directly by God. The relationship is perpetual. It means it's last till death. It's exclusive. Only that man and only that woman are involved, and it's limited to acts which are themselves suitable for the generation of children. Because they're both baptized, this is a sacramental marriage, which has the added dignity of being a mutual assistance pact between Michael and Martha to help each other to know and to love and to serve God in this life, to be happy with him forever in the next. This is what marriage is. Okay. A very brief explanation of the nature of marriage. Most of you have probably heard that before. But the bigger question is, how do we get here? How do we get to the point where a priest actually has to spend time at a wedding explaining what a marriage is? There's so much confusion and ignorance about the fundamentals, one of which is marriage. There's so much massive confusion about marriage to the point where we now have these bizarre legislative and uh, judicial attempts to produce new kinds of marriages, as if it were possible. So today we'll sketch a brief outline in really broad terms, we don't have that much time, of how we got to the point where the most basic, most essential, most fundamental societal customs, traditions, and practices can be so completely misunderstood that an ordinary person may be incapable of giving a clear explanation. After we see how we got there, we'll consider response. Let's get started. How many of us ever heard that saying, doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're a good person? Actually, it does matter. It matters a lot. We're all going to see how much that really matters, not just in this sermon, but in real life. The current disaster has its immediate source the teachings of a renegade priest, Father Luther. We all know him. We've talked about Father Luther's attacks on marriage before. Divorce and marriage is permissible to some degree. Polygamy, permissible to some degree. Marriage is a civil matter belonging to the government, and the judgments concerning marriage are to be left to the jurists. We've looked at that before. It's important to understand, but that's not what we want to look at today. Today we want to consider very briefly Father Luther's principle of private judgment and the effect that that has had on Western civilization. The principle is easy to understand. 
The Bible is to be interpreted by the individual believer. So you read it, you know what it means. It's not too hard to understand. Now, once a principle like that is accepted, it has a life of its own, so to speak, because ideas have consequences. The principle of private judgment states that the individual has the right to decide for himself what the Bible means, which in effect means that he has a right to choose what revealed truths he will believe in. For example, is John 6 speaking about our Lord's presence in the most blessed sacrament? Did our Lord really appoint St. Peter the head of the church? In the epistle of St. James, is our Lord, or is St. James really speaking about priests doing the anointing of the sick and so forth and so forth and so forth? The result, religiously, religiously speaking, of this principle is here for everyone to see. According to the 2001 edition of the World Christian Encyclopedia, now that's a Protestant work, so this is 11 years old, they have, at that time we had over 33,000 Protestant denominations. This wouldn't include the small congregations and the house churches. With all due respect to our friends, neighbors, and relatives involved in that, without any flippancy at all, I think it's safe to say when you have 33,000 different denominations, the only doctrine that they're all going to agree on is that we're wrong. In other words, this principle has the effect of completely destroying any body of doctrine. This church, this guy will say this, this will say that. You say this, she says that. Who's to say what's revealed truth and what isn't? Furthermore, it completely inverts the right relationship between man and God. It gives the individual the idea that somehow he has the right to judge what, or even an ability to judge what God has said or required and whether or not he'll accept it. Whereas the correct attitude is a complete receptivity and submission to God and his holy word. Now, besides the resulting religious chaos, which was already evident in Luther's time, and he was even complaining about himself, this principle has another very serious consequence. Over time, it produces an atmosphere of secularism, a sort of practical atheism in social life. What does that mean? Well, it means that if we don't actually blatantly deny the existence of God, we end up acting as if there's no God anyway, practically. Why? Since there's no possible way for us all to agree on what God has commanded us, you say this, I say that, she says this, they say that, we end up acting if he doesn't exist as if he hasn't commanded anything at all. So even if we agree he exists, we can't agree what he commanded. So the practical result is he doesn't have an absolute right to tell us what to do. Not simply in matters of worship, but in public life, in politics, in legislation, practical matters. It's a prescription for chaos and catastrophe in a civilization built explicitly on the Christian revelation. So over time, then, the principle of practical judgment has given rise to a dogma. The absolute independence of the individual in society from the revealed law of God. We might call that the dogma of secularism. Again, it's this absolute independence of the individual in the society from the revealed law of God. So that's the dogma of secularism on the one hand. But it's diametrically opposed to the Catholic principle. What is the Catholic principle? The Catholic principle is at the very heart of Christendom and Western civilization. The Catholic principle is that the individual and the society must be absolutely subject to the revealed law of Christ our Lord. So on the one hand, we have the notion that the individual and the society 
are absolutely independent of the revealed law of God. On the other hand, we have the idea that the individual society have to be absolutely subject to the revealed law of Christ our Lord. They're absolutely opposite of each other. This is at the heart of the cultural war. Underneath all the battles going on right now, this is what we're all actually fighting about. The only reason things have taken so long to completely fall apart is that the people who originally became Protestant didn't suddenly abandon all their moral customs that they took from Christendom. They continued to live, for the most part, in accordance with those Catholic truths and practices which they had inherited from their Catholic forefathers. And precisely because this moral and social patrimony of customs and traditions was still present in society, even after the Protestant revolt, Western civilization could still function relatively well despite the increasingly wide differences in belief among the people. All this stuff was taken for granted. But now the patrimony is gone. This great culture war we're engaged in, all these legal battles, political movements, charter schools, you name it, everything we're currently engaged in to protect our traditional values, and I want to especially include here, with great praise, the great efforts done in this regard by so many of our evangelical and fundamentalist neighbors, all these battles are important, but at best they're only delaying and flanking tactics. Why? Because the patrimony is gone. It's gone. Culturally speaking, we've squandered our wealth and wild living. Let's just consider a few of the cultural customs that are based on the revealed law of God, but have essentially vanished from our brave new world. No perjury. Men and boys must defend women and children, even at the cost of their own lives. Women must dress in a modest fashion. No witchcraft, voodoo or sorcery, no blasphemy, worship God on Sundays, no shopping on Sundays, virginity until marriage, no adultery, no perversion, no contraception, no abortion, and on and on and on. The list goes on, but the important point is, culturally speaking, we've lost all these battles. Every last one of them. Now, that doesn't mean that we run up the white flag and quit fighting. It certainly doesn't mean that we can just blend in the current environment. We have to do our duty. Right is right, even when there's so much wrong around. But culturally speaking, we have to admit we've lost these battles. The patrimony is gone. See how far we've fallen from the traditional Catholic understanding there's a body of revealed truths that we must all embrace. Consider this absolute gem from the United States Supreme Court. It's found in the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision, upheld Roe v. Wade. Quote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Close quote. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Here we can see where the principle of private judgment has led us. That right concretely, here we can see this idea that the individual and the society are absolutely independent of the revealed law of God. It's distilled into this one line. At the heart of liberty 
is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Well, they don't mean that anyway. Just try exercising your right to define the universe and don't include the IRS and see if the Supreme Court backs you up. We shouldn't be surprised that this particular line is also being invoked as a basis for legal decisions to establish, or legal arguments to establish these San Francisco-style marriages, among other abominations. So now we find ourselves fighting this militant secularism, and it's racing from victory to victory. And it's a formidable foe. Remember that they believe that the individual and society are absolutely independent of the revealed law of God. And on the other hand, we believe that it should be absolutely subject to the law of Christ our Lord. Again, it's the heart of the war we're in. For the most part, the secularism has captured the institutions, the media, the schools, the universities, the seminaries, the courts, etc. Okay, so what should we do about it? First off, we want to keep a little perspective. It's just another battle in a war we've been fighting for 2,000 years. We're going to win. That's a given. There's no worries there. We overthrew the Roman Empire. But we have to make sure that on the one hand, we don't become casualties ourselves in this terrible war. We don't betray Christ, go over to the other side. That's on the one hand. There are a lot of casualties. And on the other hand, we need to do everything in our power to bring people over to our side. The stakes are eternal. So the question we need to ask ourselves now is, how do we remain faithful to Christ and bring people over to our side, given the current conditions. Let's get started. 1963, Father Alexander Schmemann, he's a Orthodox priest, made some very penetrating comments on the problem of secularism. Quote, Secularism's philosophy of life is taken for granted without our clergy or people even being aware of it. Secularism is not the product of any special indoctrination. It is the very way of life of American society. It comes to us by thousands of channels, through schools, through publicity, through magazines, through the whole ethos of our society. It is a consistent, closed, and very powerful philosophy of life. Unless it is challenged and questioned as a whole, it not only cannot be overcome, but it can't even be seen and understood as something radically alien to a traditional Christian understanding. Secularism is, above all, a negation of worship. It's primarily a heresy about man. It's a negation of man as a worshiping being, as the one for whom worship is the essential act. Close quote. Secularism is, above all, a negation of worship. It is a heresy about man. The late abbot of Liberoux, Benedictine Abbey in southern France, Dom Gerard, spoke of man as a worshiping being. Quote, man is only truly himself when he adores. Adoration is a sign by which the creature identifies himself and performs his primary function. Adoration is a free and loving submission of the whole being to God, by which the believer recognizes the sovereign rights God has over his creature. Close quotes. So secularism is primarily a heresy about man. It's the negation of man as a worshiping being, the negation of man for whom worship is an essential act. But man is only truly himself when he adores. And adoration is a sign by which the creature identifies himself 
and performs his primary function. Again, it is a free and loving submission by which the believer recognizes the sovereign rights God has over his creature. Now Dom Girard gives us the key idea. Quote, our liturgy, he's speaking of the traditional mass and divine office. Our liturgy is essentially about adoration. Close quote. A key feature of the traditional liturgy is that they are essentially ordered towards adoration, towards expressing the subjection of the individual and the society to the revealed law and rule of Christ our Lord. And the traditional liturgy has the power to preserve us in the faith. Dom Girard, quote, The liturgy gathers the faithful around a fixed point. It prevents the faith from sliding down the slippery slope of forgetfulness. It prevents them from drifting away from the faith. Close quote. Dom Gerard speaks of the power of the traditional liturgy to elevate unbelievers and bring them to the feet of Christ. Quote, One enters the church by two doors. Door of truth and the door of beauty. The narrow door is that of truth. The wider door is that of beauty. More than anything else, The liturgy deserves to be called the splendor of the truth. It opens to the small and the great alike the treasures of its magnificence, the beauty of psalmody, sacred chants and texts, candles, harmony of movement and dignity of bearing. With sovereign art, the liturgy exercises a truly seductive effect on souls, even before the soul perceives its influence. The beauty of the sacred rite ennobles souls, It elevates them by exercising over them the sweet attraction of heaven. Close quote. This attraction of beauty is so important, especially in our days when so many people are confused and dazzled by a world gone mad. If we're really serious about lovingly submitting ourselves to Almighty God, we must express that love not just with truth, not just with goodness, but also with beauty. And once we understand the role of the liturgy is to express this fundamental need of adoration proper to man, this fundamental need of the, of, that's just essential to man to freely and lovingly submit himself to God, to visibly express that sovereign rights that God has over him, once we realize all that, and at the same time realize that in its essence, secularism is a negation of all that, once we realize both those points, then we have the pro- ability to place the problem of the liturgical collapse and subsequent loss of faith in the correct light. In 1963, before the collapse, Father Schmemann issued a prophetic warning regarding trends in liturgy. Quote, Some think that it must be possible to find not only some kind of accommodation, but even a deeper harmony between our secular age, on the one hand, and worship, on the other hand. In which case, our whole problem is only that of finding or inventing a worship more acceptable, more relevant to the modern man's secular worldview. And such indeed is the direction taken today, he's writing in December 63, by the great majority of liturgical reformers. What they seek is worship whose forms and content would reflect the needs and aspirations of the secular man, or even better, of secularism itself. Close quote. So liturgical reformers wanted to accommodate the sacred liturgy to the secular worldview in order to make it more relevant. Unfortunately, they did. 
They introduced worship whose forms and contents would reflect the needs and aspirations of secular man. The results can only be described as a catastrophe of biblical proportions. Dom Gerard speaks after the collapse, quote, Forgetfulness of God's transcendence has plunged the world into a tragic situation. The present world is dying because it rid itself of the supernatural. Naturalism has entered into modern man's manner of prayer and appears under the most varied forms. A raging hunger for novelty and adaptation, invasion of modern music and vulgar language. Finally, creativity, which is one of the subtlest forms of human pride. In short, modern man gives in to the temptation to adapt religion to man, instead of doing what the church has tried to do through the ages, adapt man to religion. Close quote. The point is, we learn who we are, we learn what we are, in front of the altar. Before the first epistle of St. Paul was written, before the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written, before the first theological treatise was written, all those, before they were all written, we were a worshiping church gathered around the living God. The traditional liturgies of the church have the power to draw people to our cause and to sustain us in the battles and even in persecution. And that's not an exaggeration. Here's what Maximus V, Malachite Patriarch, uh, Malachites are Eastern Rite Catholics, said in 1977 to the first synod of bishops dedicated catechesis. And I quote the Patriarch. It was a celebration of the divine liturgy that kept the faith of the faithful intact during the centuries of the Muslim persecution. It was a celebration of the divine liturgy of St. John Chrysostom that kept the faith of the faithful intact during the centuries of the Muslim persecution. So what have we seen? We've seen that we're facing a formidable foe, militant secularism, which proclaims that the individual and the society are absolutely independent of the revealed law of God. We believe that the individual and the society must be absolutely subject to the real law of Christ our Lord. We've seen that it's at the heart of the culture war. It's underneath every battle, what we're actually fighting about. We asked ourselves how to make sure we'd remain faithful to Christ and at the same time bring people to him. We saw that secularism is primarily a heresy about man, denies that worship is the essential act of man, that man is only himself truly when he adores. Again, we've seen adoration is a free and loving submission by which the believer recognizes sovereign rights God has over his creature, and the traditional liturgies are essentially ordered towards expressing that. We've seen they have the power to keep the faith attacked, to sustain us in the battle, to sustain us in persecution, and to draw people into a loving relationship with Christ through the door of beauty. Let's close. We're about to engage in the most subversive thing possible to overthrow the regime of those who believe that the individual and society are absolutely independent of the revealed law of God. We are about to demonstrate in the most efficacious manner possible the absolute truth that the individual and the society must be absolutely subject to Christ our Lord and his laws. We are about to do something that will strengthen and support our faith, give us strength for the battle, conform us to the true and the beautiful and the good. We're going to do all this the presence of our Savior and King, the presence of Our Lady, our Queen, and the presence of all the angels and saints. We're going to sing a solemn high mass. 
Once we understand that, we'll know exactly who and what we are actually fighting for.